0: I'll say that ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, he's
1: there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation podcast, podcast with host Eddie Trunk.
4: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, new every Thursday wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe. And thank you for doing so, so you don't miss a podcast and a newsmaking interview with some of the biggest names in rock. Appreciate you checking it out wherever in the world you do so. And once again, as I remind you every week, everything you hear on the podcast originated on my Sirius XM radio show, which is heard live Monday through Friday. It's called Trunk Nation. It's on Faction Talk Channel 103, and it's live 3 to 5 Eastern Time daily. And, of course, you can listen to it anytime you want on the SiriusXM app, audio, video, and much more available there to SiriusXM subscribers. If you live in the U.S. or Canada and you only listen to this podcast, trust me, you're getting only a tiny, tiny taste of the fun, interactive stuff that I do live on the radio each and every weekday. Please be sure to tune in for Trunk Nation and come on board and join me if you are not already a subscriber to Sirius XM makes a great Christmas gift for somebody, get them a subscription, let them get the whole trunk nation picture all five days or six shows a week live, as opposed to just a uh, one interview from, from the radio show. So hope you come on board if you're not already. And thank you for doing so everybody else. This is a great way for us to get some of our content out to you guys to check out. And of course, a special hello to those outside of the U S and Canada that listen every week that cannot engage in Sirius XM and can't get the service so this is a good way to reach you guys as well uh you know for those that do listen on the radio or have listened to me on any sort of regular basis you know one of the things i really enjoy doing is spotlighting producers talking to record producers about their history and making records and working with all these artists i call them producer spotlights they're a lot of fun to do they're often very revealing. You get a completely different side of, you know, an artist's uh, records and how they were made and different perspectives from the people that made them. And they're a lot of fun to do. And I've done a ton of them throughout my career. This week on the podcast, uh, one that I did from my home in Vegas. This guy lives in Vegas. His studio is in Vegas. And he is, as far as um, new, newer rock and metal, one of the leading guys making records today. His name is Kevin Cherko. Kevin has worked with Five Finger Death Punch on, I think, every single one of their records. He produced huge records for Disturbed. He did a couple Ozzy Osbourne records. Uh, He's got quite a resume and quite a history, which actually links back to producer Mutt Lange, who he kind of learned under, and there's some great insights and stories about his time with Mutt. So if you're into the production world of making music, you're into the the behind-the-scenes stuff, you're into hearing how some of these records were created. Talking to these producers is just fantastic. And this was a great conversation when Kevin came by my studio in Las Vegas, and we had a great afternoon talking about his career. Want to bring it to you this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, producer Kevin Cherko. Some great stories here. Check it out. Good to see you, man. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for coming out.
3: Thank you. I'm honored. I know honored. I can't believe I'm on your show. That that box is now checked.
4: <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> well, I know that we talked about uh, trying to get together, and you're, the the woman who runs your studio was nice enough to invite me out. Okay. Um, I, I'm I forget her Z- name. Is Zoe or Chloe? Zoe? Oh, so, okay. Is yeah. it Pat Thrall's y- wife? Yeah. Wife. Yeah. Is that Zoe? Yeah. Okay. So she was nice enough to reach out to oh. me. And said, come out, come out and check out the studio. Oh, and sure. I've been meaning to do so, but I haven't had a chance to do it. Well, you have to
3: come. It's the uh, um, best place in town, of course. <laughs> the hideout. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm going to say, say that, but, you know, four studio rooms. We've, we've had such notaries as everybody from Corey Taylor to Gene Simmons came in there one, one day as well. I mean, we've had a lot of rock guys, a lot of hip hop guys. It's, it's, it's a great, great place.
4: Now, I got to know you when you were working at the hideout from our friend Ron Mancuso uh, at his place, and you guys were jointly in there. And then how long ago did you open this studio? Uh,
3: I think I've been in the new place for six years now.
4: Everybody I've talked to is raved about it and says it's an amazing facility. Did you build it from the ground up?
3: No, the one at Ron's, I built that one. But this one here, uh, you know my son and I had kind of outgrown our space. We just need, need more room. So I started looking around. I was going to build one. And then this studio became available to, to buy. And so they, they had built it. They started building, it, I think in 2006. And I was around, I just moved to Vegas in 2005. So I knew it was there. I knew some of the people involved building it. I got to see it kind of being built. In fact, the, the real story is I went there in about 2005, looking for a job, uh, or looking for work, but also looking for a place to take clients and that sort of thing. And, uh, didn't get a job and I did take some clients there throughout time, but, uh, I loved the place. It was so great. And I I always kept putting a feeler in their, their ear. If you ever want to sell, let me know. If you ever want to sell, let me know. Can I just rent the whole place for, for a year? And the price was always too expensive or they didn't want to sell. And so eventually, uh, one day an email showed up from them saying, we're ready to sell I said, okay, I didn't think I could afford it, but I didn't, I didn't tell, him, tell him that. And I thought at some point, someone will laugh at me, the bank will laugh at me, they'll laugh at me, my wife will laugh at me, but I just kept going step by step until I had the keys, not in my hand, my daughter's hand, and because uh, I, was, I was out of, out of town and uh, bought the sucker, and here I am.
4: You know, just the idea of buying a studio, which it sounds like it's a pretty big place, mm-hmm. live rooms and all of that, There's this theory that it's been out there for, I don't know, the last 20 years or so, where the idea of big studios are like it's extinct. Like everybody's doing stuff in their houses and in their bedrooms and with computers, you can you know find ways to do things and we all saw during covid people making records not even in the same room and then i talked to artists where they feel like there is still a great value in being in the same room and looking at each other eye to eye when they play when you go and make a big investment like this was there concern that where things are going in terms of the way recording is done is this even viable especially in vegas
3: yeah i mean when i when i was first interested in it i kind of put the numbers down and and i know that I, that I can literally work every every day, right? There's no shortage of work for me. There's no shortage of work for my son. So I thought, worst case, can I just pay these bills? You know, the mortgage, the energy that, I mean, the energy at a place like that with a, with consoles and right. stuff, that's like, I can't, like 2,500, 3,000 a month. You know, can I pay all these bills and not go broke? And the answer was, I probably could, but then I had two extra rooms I could book. So, you know, you're right in the sense that it's a different model these days for studios and you know, there aren't really too many new studios like mine being built these days. I mean, it's a 13,000 square foot building. That's almost all a studio in different, different ways. But, um, but for the music I like that has drums, you need a decent sized room or a couple of rooms and um, still, no matter what, it still represents a studio to the other. Let's, let's call it the other side of the coin, the, hip hoppers, the guys that are making their their albums in their rooms or on the road or wherever they do it, they still like to come into a studio too and see a console, be part of a com- com- community, be able to invite people in, have a good playback system. So it it's actually turned out that it's really relevant in so many ways, other than maybe just the old school way of a band coming in there for three months and setting up to record. I don't think those days happen that much anymore where... When I was being brought up, you know, it, it, even when I started working in studios in Van, Vancouver, you know, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, Metallica, they would come to a little mountain and set up there for months, and you know, I was lucky enough to be around a little bit during those those times, and you know, they just pitch up and stay there for three months. I don't think that happens in the same way now. So even when a major band will book my studio, usually it's just to do beds, you know, guitar, bass, and drums, that sort of thing, or mixes or playback you know, videos, you know, those types of things. But, you know, I don't, and I think a lot of those kind of people that want that have systems in their house now too, you know, they're old school guys that have made their money and they can have kind of a mini recording studio in their house. Some of the new guys can't always afford that it's a different system. You get paid back longer periods of time from streaming rather than all up front on the first week of sales. So, um, you know but but for for me honestly i look back at at that at that day when i was thinking about should i do it and go why was he even worried i mean it's been amazing
4: yeah i, I think like and I, and and you would be the guy to answer this it seems like the reported demise of the traditional big recording studio was maybe a little over exaggerated now i do know a lot of them closed a lot of the big ones like in new york city you know where i Have grown up my whole life and been based I mean some of the legendary studios there are long gone unfortunately LA same thing but you do then start to hear the rise of other places starting to pop up and people still kind of wanting that experience again as a producer do you think do you think artists can make great records that feel like they were made in a studio when they never even met each other and they're in separate rooms
3: well these days there's a there's a trend towards the features for artists. And so that's a similar thing to what you're saying, where there'll be a band or an artist and they'll invite someone else to collaborate. But really what that collaboration means is that guy records in his own house and sends his tracks in. Right. Not really collaboration. So, so I, you know, I don't know if I can answer that distinctly other than to say it can be done both ways. I mean, it's not really collaboration. I don't feel unless you're in the same room getting together Throwing ideas around, trying different different things, right? But that's not to say that someone can't send a track to you, which I've done many times. You know, uh, via the internets, send you the file, and it triggers you in a different way, and all of a sudden the st- song starts taking a different different direction. So,
4: I mean, you can do that. It's just a lot easier and a lot
3: more fun when you are in the same same room.
4: Let me go back to your beginnings. You mentioned Little Mountain. Did you did you come? Where did you start? Start well. I I kind of
3: somewhat claim the Little Mountain lineage, but not because I was an employee or not because I worked under any of those guys. But basically, my band and I lived in Vancouver during those days. And so um, at the time, the the manager of Little Mountain really liked our band, and we won some band wars and stuff like that in Vancouver. So he used to give us the downtime. Down so he would give us like the midnight... To eight a.m. shift.
4: What was your band?
3: Uh, the The Explorers was that band, the rock rock band.
4: And did they did you quote unquote make it in Canada? Well, we had a record
3: coming out right on the verge of when Nirvana hit. And at, music changed at that point. And so for us, it was over before it be, began.
4: Were you doing more of like an 80s
3: vibe? Yeah, it, it was. I'd have to say that's true. It, you know, we were, you know, again, we're from, we're not from the punk rock lineage. We're from maybe the heavy rock, rock lineage at right. that, that time, you know, with a little bit of pop in there too. So, um, you know. The more processed sounds and, you know, the records that were out at that time, right before that moment in time, was like Aerosmith, um, what would it be? Uh, Pump. Pump, yeah. Uh, even Living on a Prayer was shortly after that. I mean, it was kind of at the height of that sort of genre that Smells Like Teen Spirit came out and then everything changed. Right, so right. And then when everything changed, that's when I started to get into more the production end of it because i had a family by then my son was already like five or six at that point
4: but just going Um, backtracking on the band a second because most producers come from being in bands you know almost everyone i've talked to did the band was called explorer yeah did did you have explorers explorers did you get a record deal in canada
3: well we had a indie deal um so we had a deal we had they financed it but here's the thing is that so the gentleman that was running the amount at the time uh he basically gave us all the studio time on spec, so we were going into Little Mountain every night, or as much as we could on spec. Mostly recording with uh, with my good friend now Mike Plotnikov, who's an engineer, worked for Howard Benson, produced his own stuff, very legendary, worked on everything. Sure. And he was in that in in that lineage of he was Bruce Fairburn's guy you know, engineer from Kiss to the Cranberries to to Aerosmith to whatever he was working on at that time. Mike was engineering that. So Mike would record us in the middle mid, middle of the night. He was still an assistant at that, at that time. So he was a lower man on the totem pole. So um, the owner or the manager of the studio gave us Mike and we'd play at night in the club till midnight till 2 a.m. Then we go to Little Mountain. And a lot of times, you know, they had a couple of rooms there too. So they had an A room and a B room and kind of a, like a C edit room and so you know i would usually at the a room would be gone by the time we got there so if you know one time bob rock was doing bon jovi in the a room we go into the b room and you know i'd be sneaking over to the a room just to see how they were setting up drum mics and how they were you know look at the tracks on the board just try to learn as much as i can without being in that room in the daytime
4: what did you play in the explorers drums you were a drummer. Yeah. So you already early on, may you're already taking an interest in not only just going in there and knocking out your drums, but learning how they're being recorded and mixed. You're kind of just fly on the wall t- being a sponge. Well, I, th- I think you have to
3: understand that I was from a very small town called Moose, Moose Jaw. And so there weren't any studios there. There's maybe a couple, you know, near nearby. Right. So, you know, at an early age, I became an engineer because there's just nobody else to record or band. Everything that we went to some studio with didn't sound great. So just by default, I had to figure out how to make it sound better. So before we got to Vancouver, living there, I had already been doing demos on my four-track, on my eight-track. So I, I kind of somewhat knew what I was going for, but had never been with a real engineer until Mike Plotnikoff. I'd never been, saw how you know, Bob Rock as a producer or an engineer when he started out, you know, worked. So I was able to, armed with some knowledge that I had, go in there and look at everything and go, oh, that's how they're doing that. Oh, they're building a bass drum tunnel there. Oh, they got this tunnel going out to the garage. Oh, I get it. Look at those room mics. They're back there. So because I had a little bit of a somewhat of an earlier education of just being blind and kind of putting my hands against the wall trying to figure out how to to do it, uh, once I had access to that, I kind of... You know, I would have loved to have been in on that sessions, but at least I could look and see how they were doing it, so what kind of mics they use, how they're patching it, what they were going through, and you know, furthermore, even more than that, you know, the story that I've only started telling recently is that because there was nobody in that studio at night, uh, Mike would start falling falling asleep about four, and us band guys, or at least me, I would hop up into the tape locker, and I'd bring down all the twenty-four track two-inch tapes of all those legendary records from AC/DC to whatever was going on. And I just load them up and listen to the raw tracks on those tapes, unmixed, unprocessed. And I just hit the rewind button. Oh, there's a punch. Oh, there's a punch. Solo the vocal. Oh, that's so compressed, you know, but figure out, but then realizing by the end of the chain, that mix sounds amazing, you know, and then that gave me sort of a benchmark. Okay. I have to be at least this good. If I can get to be this good, maybe have a, have, have a shot. So, you know, and then before the morning staff came in, I'd get all the tapes and take them back up there. And-
4: you're talking four in the morning. So, yeah. yeah. yeah, And for people that don't know, when Kevin talks about a deal on spec, what that basically means is you're going in there, not paying, but the understanding is if anything happens with it, then you're going to pay what's yeah. uh, a fair price back. The, it's basically a, the, the studio taking a flyer on you and a belief on you, giving you some time when nobody else is going to use it. And if something happens with those recordings, then you kind of make good on it.
3: Yes. And it took us so long because we were all studio nuts. We are all studio heads. So it would take us so long to record stuff. Eventually, that guy got tired. <laughs> Isn't the record done yet? Yeah, yeah. You're done. You got two more weeks. You got one more week. Got one more week. Got two more weeks. And, yeah. and then finally, we were just done. And then we actually weren't done, so we had to go finish it at a different studio at that point. But, you know, we used up our credit, let's call it, and then, of course, you know, the record didn't do much and, and he never got paid. paid yeah, much.
4: and uh, for the, and again, I just always keep in mind that people listen that aren't in, as immersed in this stuff as I am, but Little Mountain Studios in Vancouver, legendary spot where, as Kevin mentioned, everyone from ACDC to Bon Jovi to Brian Adams to many others have all made records, And Bruce Fairburn, one of the, probably the best known guy to come out of there, uh, who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. But does that studio still exist? Little Mountain's still there? Uh, You know, I think,
3: think Garth Richardson, producer Garth. Yeah. I think, I don't know if he owns it or leases it, but him and some other people, business people, they they run a recording school out of there now, or at least part of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't think it's an active recording studio as such. It's not what it was.
4: So where is the move where you... So it sounds like you're pretty much taught yourself this stuff from just being around it, taking the initiative to pull those tapes out, be a sponge. Was Did you have a mentor, though? Did you have somebody that when you decided, oh, I'm going to stop, move away from playing drums and trying to be in a band and actually produce bands, engineer bands, was there one guy, was there one person that was doing it at the time that saw something in you and, and kind of took took you under their wing? At that time, there wasn't, really. At that time, it was really reading every
3: issue of Mixed Magazine. I, I don't think Sound on Sound was around at that time, but Electronic Musician, whatever print I could find. And it wasn't like these days you can almost find out anything at any time just by Googling it. Right. In those days, it was tough. So you had to just kind of experiment and try to figure it out and read and ask people. But there really wasn't one person that I can think of at that time until... Mutt hired me and plucked me out of obscurity and you know took me to switzerland and that's when my true mentoring kind of started
4: so obviously the mutt you're talking about is the the legendary mutt lang and i was wondering about that because i was talking about you before you came on and i said that although i know you i don't know the full story which is one of the reasons why i wanted to do this so mutt lang tell that story he he how does he find you and he he brings you to Switzerland to work with him. How does that all go down? Well, um, so he was
3: already kind of like the guy that I would, if I could pick one guy, it definitely would have been him because ACDC back on Black Hysteria by Def Leppard, not to mention the Brian Adams and Foreigner and all that kind of stuff. So he was sort of, he was doing the records that I liked. And basically the 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 short story, the long story was that... Um, my brother and I. My brother's a a guitar player, right? And Plays for Shania Twain, right? Y- yes.
4: And is her music director? Yes. Right.
3: Okay. Correct. Correct. Corey. Corey. Yeah. Right. And. Um,
4: and is in Took.
3: And is in <laughs> the infamous Let's not two. forget, Fitz and Kurtz w-
4: will kill us if we don't mention Took. I
3: will not forget that because that's an amazing <laughs> success story in and of itself. So
4: those guys will be here tomorrow. But yeah, Fred.
3: Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah those guys are killer. That is definitely the best one of the best live bands you'll ever see if you're a Canadian, I'll tell you yeah. that. <laughs> um, amazing players, amazing songs. Sure. <clears throat> but basically the story was, so Corey auditioned at that time as a fiddle player for Sh- Shania, and I actually auditioned as the drummer.
4: And this so, is when Mutt was married to Shania? When he was with still her. married to okay. her, right. right. So...
3: Um, it just came out of the blue for Corey, really. They were really looking for a, a rock-looking fiddle player for stage, and Corey could, not only could he play, but he, you know, he was we were young at that time. It was a, you know, he looked very rock and roll and understood rock, understood country, all, all that, you know, all that necessary stuff, and then he nailed it. I didn't. I didn't get that gig, but by that time, I was already kind of focusing more on studio. I probably hadn't played a live gig in a while at that point, and so even on my resume to them, it just listed studio credits. And stuff i was doing at that that time so i you know my infamous story about that was that when i was auditioning they flew me down to new york i went through this and my brother wasn't there at the time but i went through the audition i i did horribly had to sing i couldn't sing the right part uh it went on and as i was get going out of the rehearsal building a pigeon flew by and literally shit on my shoulder
4: it's supposed to be good luck well, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> you know, you still don't want it to happen, but it's supposed to be good luck. It's and just it like when they say in England when they throw piss and spit at you, it's supposed to be they're giving approval. No, fuck that. Nobody wants that to happen. Yeah. But
3: well, yeah. I didn't know that. I just thought, yeah, that figures. I walk out of out of right. just sucking, it's and then I, I'm I'm, I'm literally
4: like, got shit on.
3: <laughs> yeah, so, anyways, long story short, he gets the gig. He goes on tour. I go back to Saskatchewan at that, that time, but I'm working twenty four seven in studios. I'm Learning, I've got lots of time on my hands. I'm trying to get good, and then Mutt sort of uh, wanted to make a change in his team of guys, and lost one of his main guys and needed another guy, needed someone like myself. And so they remembered that I was doing that. They loved Corey, and they remembered I was doing that. They asked Corey, "Isn't your brother still doing that?" Yeah. So Corey gave him my my number, and one day in the middle of the night, 4 a.m., Mutt calls me out of the blue and just talks me for an hour, and that was that. And then about a month later calls me again and just wants to know if I want to come by to meet up. And he flies me over to Switzerland. So I get on a plane. I can't remember how many hours that took. But I New get... New York to Switzerland? Uh, no, I was in Moose Jaw at that time, basically. Oh, okay. So uh, actually, I was in a uh, Canadian city called Regina. Right. And so he flew me from there. And probably, I don't know, 12 hours maybe by that, at that time with all the connections... I show up. I get there at nine. At sorry, at nine a.m. We work. I work for thirty six hours straight, almost with him. On what? Uh, that was. We were uh, what were we were working on. I think it was a band called the the Chorus. Okay. Which is a more of an Irish Irish yeah, yeah, yeah family band that that year that when that song finally came out, it was the most played song in Europe that 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 year. But you know, but it was really it was really more than that. When it showed up, he had a technical problem that his guy couldn't figure out, and I had lots of technical experience, so I fixed immediately some sync problems he had with his tape deck versus Pro Tools and those kinds of things. Uh, so I was a hero to begin with, and then basically he just kind of vibed with me, and I did some programming, some synth stuff, programming some drum stuff. He played guitar, I recorded that uh, until I couldn't do it any 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 and then he said basically don't call us we'll call you and he said he'd get up to see me off because then I, my three days were up I left and didn't get up to see me out, off so I thought off oh, I, I blew it you know but but then again you know about a couple weeks later he called me again do you want to come over and do it for for real I said yeah so he said, "Well, we'll fly over for a month. He'll stay here for a month, and then he'll go go home for 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 a
4: week." So you were basically what would you say is assistant engineer, as engineer? I was. What was your role?
3: Engineer role? slash programmer. Okay. So I recorded everything. He he never touches the gear. I mean, musical gear. He'll play play guitar, piano, whatever. But he won't he won't uh, really touch much on the console or anything like that. So it's like I I would just record him. Artists, you know that that he was working with, and then, you know, program stuff. At that time, he was doing a lot of the female pop things, like we did a Britney Spears track, uh a Celine Dion track, different things like that. So we, you know, he, I mean, I was just his hands. I mean, I wasn't really the creative driving force or anything like that. But he would be programming a string section for a Celine Dion song, and you know, he or I would just be playing the notes, and he'd be telling me what to make each. The violins do this, the cellos do this, the bass line does that. And then eventually we'd take that to an orchestrator who'd orchestrate it and then they'd actually do real, real strings on it. So it was that kind of process or just even just writing the song, the circular way that he writes a song, you know, it changes right up until the very, very end until the mix. Like he can he can change tempos, change feel at any point. So there's a lot of work that goes into his as a
4: rock guy, you're in there working with Mutt Lang on Celine Dion, Shania Twain, Britney Spears. Are you at that point, I mean, were you into it musically or was it more of just like I'm working with Mutt Lang and I'm learning my craft here and learning the diversity of the type of music that you may end up working in? Like, you know, wh- wh- where was your head at at that point?
3: Well, I remember asking him one time. uh you know, do you think you'll ever do any like rock bands ever again?
4: DC again?
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that's what I loved about him. But but that wasn't all I loved about him. I mean, I was a country guy too, so I loved the country stuff he was doing at that time. And and I'm just a music guy in general, so it it kind of didn't matter to me what he would he would do. I just wanted to do it. I just I just kept telling myself, just shut up and learn as much as you can. Keep learning. Keep learning. You know. And I he he kept showing me stuff. And what's he? Do you, are you still in touch with him? Uh, I haven't talked to him in a while, certainly since COVID. Um, but we used to talk every now and then i talked to him when he had his, his divorce and separation and all that.
4: And he, cause he, you know, as you know, he's <laughs> like, it's like seeing a unicorn. If people see Mutt Lang, I mean, he's the most reclusive guy. Even when you see TV shows where they mention him, there's like a headshot from like 84. It's like the only picture they use of him. What, what do you, what do you take from all that? Like, what do you know about Mutt that maybe we don't, why is he so reclusive? Why is he wired like that? Um, well, Do you think?
3: that's why I was so blessed. And he's got only a handful of people that he's has ever truly worked with him, too, in that way, right? So it's not like he just hires engineer after engineer. I mean, he's the same guys for years and years, right? So yeah. once you're in the club, you're in that club until you leave, you know, basically. Uh, but, you know, why is he like that? I think I've, I sometimes wish that I had the forethought that he had to... He, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care about the fame. He doesn't care. He doesn't even care about the money. I mean, he, I, I have heart, the only thing I ever saw him spend money on was good food. I mean, right. you know, and, and traveling. Right. But, um, you know, he'd spend money there. But he doesn't care about cars and all those big houses and stuff. He's got a great place, but it's not like he, he revolves around that. So for him, it was always about, about the music. Let's make the music good. He just wanted number one, number one, number one. I mean, That was number one chart. Yeah, he he was into chart. He just wanted to win. He just wanted to win all the time, and whatever it took to do that. That's what he was focused on making the greatest music he could. Um, But and at the same time, you know, sometimes his validation or all of our validation is, what did it chart? How much? Not just that, but how much did it sell? How were the fans? I mean, will it be an eternal song? You know, will it keep coming back again and again? Mm. And a lot of his stuff will you know, but you know, I just think that that was his happy place was, was, being in that studio and his unhappy place was probably what I'm doing right now. Talking to you.
4: <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. not you personally, right, but, but just doing interviews. Yeah. yeah. He,
3: he didn't, you know, if someone came up to him, he would on the street, he would evade it as much as he can. Hey, aren't you lying? I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I, I think part of it was that he just didn't ever want to be a, maybe, I mean, I don't even want to speak for him because he is even private about his own thoughts. Right. But, uh, but he he didn't do, he definitely didn't do it for the fame clearly because yeah. like you said how many pictures are there of him
4: oh yeah i mean it's if he wanted to do it for the fame i mean he'd be the guy you'd be seeing on the voice or whatever else i mean yeah. he could get any gig he wanted he, just with his his resume yeah no yeah it's yeah good.
3: he's not that guy really at all he's he just he wants to sit on the beach and hear some guy in the next in the or Ten feet away from him playing one of his songs.
4: Yeah. Well, yeah. well, there's plenty of that out there. That's for sure. With the yeah. his his catalog. So where do you go from there in terms right. of your career? What's your next moves as a producer? Well, or as an aspiring producer.
3: Well, I was so burnt by the time I was done done with him because he works hard. And even when he didn't have to, I mean, we'd be in there 10 a.m. till four a.m. every single day. You know? And one at the end of my last stint with him, I worked six months straight without like even a day off. I had half a day off because we were flying somewhere and we had, you know, we, 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 we get home to Switzerland and he says, hey, Kevin, you might as well take the rest of the day, day off. And that was my day off in six months. So I was ready to also, armed with all the new knowledge I had and all the new skills I had, I kind of wanted to try, try my own way, way at it. And he fully supported that and encouraged that and helped me do that. In fact, he didn't, he didn't ever get me a job and, you know or anything like that. But when I was ready to go, I told him, you know, I think I want to go take a crack at LA and, and, uh, he said, okay, if you want to go, you know, I'll help you do it. Here's some cash, you know, here's, you know, hook up with my immigration lawyer, all that sort of stuff. So he helped me do that. And I went to LA and that's kind of when I realized, okay, well, just because I have one name behind me, it means it's meaningless. and it means nothing. And I basically, I didn't have to start from scratch because I also had the skills, you know, but at the same time, it's like, I didn't have, i pitched up there. I, I had a little bit of a job because the guy that mixed some Mutz albums by the name of Mike Shipley sure. he, he was a big time mixer at that time. My brother had worked for him as a as an assistant and a mix prepper so I had had a little bit of a landing pad, but in the end, I never worked a day for for him. Uh, I got another job doing some some editing in this as, as soon as I showed up in town and that led to I did a bunch of you know kind of you know mostly what we'd call fix and mix gigs, you know editing vocals, editing drums. For other producers and labels and that sort of thing, that kind of kept me going for a bit.
4: What was your first production? What was your first thing that you actually produced? Well, I had
3: a couple of uh, indie bands that I got connected to, as well as I was doing some Canadian country stuff that I never kind of left those roots. That that paid my bills for a bit too, but basically, basically the Aussie record was my first real big time production.
4: Which gig. was, which one was it? Uh, which album was that?
3: Black Black Rain.
4: Black Rain. Yeah. So that was the first, so that was the first thing you did with Ozzy. So how do you get aligned yeah. with Ozzy?
3: Well, so that worked. There's a couple of different long stories. I'll try to give you the quick, quick ones. Originally, the guy who sponsored me into the country for my immigration visa owned, a, uh, his Dave, name is David Frangione. He owned a recording studio building company. He was building a studio for Ozzy.
4: I just met him recently. Oh, okay. He's working with a friend of mine right now on a project. I just met him. Yeah.
3: So he's the guy that sponsored me in the country and gave me my, my lease on life. So I owe him, him a lot. But he was building Ozzy's studio, the one, if you remember from the TV show, the one in Beverly Hills in his back, backyard there. So David's company was doing that and uh they had finished building drum room it was very small and Ozzy couldn't understand how the drums were going to sound good in that little tiny room and so David said let me call my friend and he called me I don't think I was working for him at that time but he called me and uh I went over there and set some drums up and I played them myself and recorded it called Ozzy to come down and listen to it and they had let me know ahead of time he really liked the in the air tonight kind of you know, drum sound, that big gated verb sound. So I kind of hooked it up like that and played some stuff. And he literally sat down for a couple of minutes and said, oh, cool. And then left. But that got me in that door a little bit, at least his staff and the people that were surrounding him and I got to meet them. And then uh, basically they needed a studio manager guy, right? And I just, I, I turned it down. I said, I... If you want someone to record records, I'm your guy. If you want someone to do administration, take gear in to get fixed, be assistants for other producers, engineers, I'm not that guy. And, uh, and I said, so I politely turned it down and uh, thought they'd never call me again. But eventually, you know, they had some stuff going on. And, and the other studio manager who took the gig was recording Zach Wilde and, and Mike Borden doing some, some demos. Uh, Mike was a drummer for Ozzy for, for many, many years. And Faith No More. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Awesome dude. So they were doing some demos and then this is a guy named Zach Fagan who was working for them at the time. He had to go to Florida to to do some other stuff and then they called in me as a sub and luckily Zach was my, my Zach Fagan was, was my friend. And, um, and we just kind of vibed in the right way. Zach Wild and I vibed in the right way. And I was, you know, I've been doing this a long time, a lot longer than Zach Fagan had, so Um, they just liked what I was doing and they called me back. So I left Zach Fagan came back and then, uh, Ozzy and Zach wild called me back. But a week later asked me if I wanted to come back and just do, do some more. So I was really just an engineer at that time to facilitate a home studio. And I think that once they realized how great it could sound at home, then Ozzy said, we can make the album here. And then again, you talk about the big studio versus the small one. Well, in that case, the home studio is what kind of got me that gig was that I was able to parachute into that envir- environment, make a small studio sound good, and get to know those guys. And it
4: just kind of built a little bit by, you know, each day at that that time. So doing, and you you did more, you did my rough count of three or four Aussie records, right?
3: No, I well, I only did two, but I mixed a bunch of reissues and some different things like that and live, a live record or two live one live record and then an itunes live thing different different things
4: like so that. you're you're so ozzy was really where the name kevin Cherko as a producer engineer got on heavy rock fans radar then it sounds like
3: yeah that was my first thing of note where i was responsible for what it, what it what it was
4: and you then go the the band that i know that you i believe you've had the longest affiliation with is five finger death punch. Right. So you, you mentioned that you relocated here to Vegas in 2005. Mm. That was from LA. Yep. So what facilitates that move? Because right now as we sit in 2022, I mean, there's a ton of people have relocated to Vegas. Uh, There's a huge, there's a scene here. There's artists that are moving here, especially from California. You were ahead of the curve in thinking that Mm -hmm. and coming here when you did what, what was that about? What did you see as, as the opportunity in Vegas? Well, that process was in 2005.
3: Even in L.A., I was occasionally going to the studio, but most of the time I was at my home studio anyways, and labels would just send me drives, and I'd be you know working on those drives, or artists would come over, over to my house. So I thought, well, they're FedExing me drives within the city. I can live anywhere I want. We were renting. I couldn't even afford a house there at that, at that time, and my, my wife is a bit of a homebody, wanted to own a home, and so we had a vacation, probably not unlike yourself. I, I I don't I don't actually know your your story, but we vacationed here for a weekend, and said this is a great city. And I had a rental car, so we drove drove around and we drove around the you know the the residential area and said this doesn't look like like that bad. There's no traffic. Right. The houses were like less than half of what they were in L.A. I'm um, an hour's flight away from L.A., four hour drive. I thought we could maybe make it work here. You know, if if they're just going to kind of send me drives any any anyways, we can come here and it's cheaper. So we did and and uh, although in retrospect it was the height of the market in Vegas at that time, but it was still half of what it would cost me in LA and I could have a separated room for my studio, different air conditioning system, all the functionality that I needed at, with a house here and actually own it and then continued in that way but almost as soon as I got that house here in town I got the call from Ozzy to go work so then I beca- I drove back and forth every week Monday morning I get up at, in Vegas about 6am to drive to get to Ozzy's place about 10 and then I'd work there stay in town there until Friday and then drive back to to Vegas and I never told them I didn't live in town because I couldn't take a chance of them saying oh well you, you're going to be a problem then right, you know right. I, I, I was a low man on the totem pole I was just trying to hang on so it's like I didn't tell him I wasn't living in town. I stayed at my sister's, my my sister in law's house, and uh, about three months in, you know, we were going on a Friday night till like about midnight, and Zach Wild wanted to go a little bit longer yet. And by that time, after months of working for those guys, I said, you know, I still have to drive back to Vegas. So it'd, be, it'd be nice if <laughs> we'd be done by one a.m. or Vegas, something like that.
4: Vegas? You don't live here? <laughs> exactly. It was one
3: of because my number was still like like in L.A. Not, Right. Number. So every time they call me, as far as they know, I live down the road. Right, right. So that's when the jig was up and they realized but by that time I was locked in and, and right. it was all good. But by doing that, even when I when I was living here and going back and forth, I thought Vegas is amazing. I mean there's this is where the rock guys or this is where the industry, the music industry could exist in a different way. Yeah. Really, because you are so close to LA, but you're out of it. Right. So different environment no traffic, plus lots of ways to get into trouble here that guys succeed or fail a lot of times based on on that. I mean, if you can't get a handle on your vices here, it's a dangerous town. Totally. But if you can, then it's an, an, an amazing town. And sure enough, I mean, I had to fly back into LA and I had the system down, get on the flight, you know, two hours from my door to work or four hours from my door driving. Um, that didn't really affect me. If someone needed me in for a meeting, I was there the next next day. I mean, even when Ozzy called called me, I was there like that day. It's like,
4: did know. Ozzy ever? Did you ever record Ozzy? Did Ozzy ever come to Vegas? Did yeah. you ever work from yeah. here with Ozzy? Just a couple times, just at the very end of the
3: second album, Okay, Scream. So he came, and there's a funny story of that because I was I had a studio house by that time. I had already bought a second home, and so I, my first home was just the studio. Then at that point. So my son had a, a room, you know, a studio room there and I had a studio room and so Ozzy came to to record, just do some vocal touch ups and, and that sort of thing. And so I'd be working in the studio and all of a sudden I heard this giggling outside my door. And outside my, my control room was like the let's call it the living room, the lounge, and there's TV and stuff there. And here's Kane and my my son Kane and Ozzie sitting on the couch watching, I think it was super bad. Or something like that. And talk about a surreal moment when you walk out of your right. studio. <laughs> and,
4: your son and Ozzy watching a stoner and, movie or something. And
3: Billy laughing, like not just right. you know, chuckling. I mean having a great time. I mean I mean he didn't even want to go go work at that that, that, that point. Then. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So he came there there a couple times. Not to mention, imagine if you're in my HOAs, you know in Vegas there's a lot of HOAs, guard gated. I mean, here's Ozzy coming into not a well to do HOA, let's call it. Right. And he's getting out of the limo. It's 105 out. He's wearing all black, got his gold, you know, chains on and whatever. And coming up my walkway, I still this day wonder what my neighbors were thinking when, when that scene.
4: Well, I think about up. that here because I told you, you know, I was telling you how to get to my place here in Vegas. And, uh, you know, to answer your question, I, I, I've always loved this city. I started coming here in the 80s. And I came here as just, you know, a kid at that point that just loved having fun with my friends here, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had the idea of wanting to move here like 20 years ago. I've still, contrary to what people think, I still do not live here full time. This is only a second home. I'm still based in Jersey and my family's there and all that. But um, ultimately, I do want to relocate here full time. But it's funny when people, um, you tell people how much you love Vegas The assumption is, well, you must be a party animal, right? You must be the guy (laughs) or gambler, a gambler or drinker or you're out every night or you want to be out till three in the morning and in the casinos. They don't know because most people come here and that's what they do. And I get that. I did that plenty. But they don't know there's this whole other world in these suburbs and and it's a, it's a completely different thing because uh, I as I'm sure you I mean I come here constantly I've rarely stepped foot in a casino but yeah. so it just depends what you're looking for but if you want that yeah. or if you want a great restaurant or enter, entertain, entertainment it's ten minutes away and if you need to be in L A it's close so it it really is great but to have gotten in when you got in I mean were you concerned that uh, you would have trouble getting. Well, it worked out because the band that you really got aligned with, it was based in Vegas and Five Finger.
0: Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around with nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at Myrtlebeach.com.
2: Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.
0: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort.
1: Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Valid one time on Fridays at participating
4: McDonald's 2 through 24 Excludes tax. Must opt into rewards. How did you get connected with them? Was it they are based here in Vegas? Was it just being same place, same time? Did they know what you had done with Ozzy? Where did the connection come?
3: Uh, well, interestingly enough, the connection is on your show tomorrow. So basically, Brent Fitz is a good friend of mine, right? And he was an Alice Cooper when I first got to town, or at least backing, you know, uh, filling in, you know, with Alice Cooper. I can't, I can't remember if he was actually in the band or or filling. But and Jason Hook. Was actually uh, his friend, and in that band too, and so With Cooper. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's how it worked. And yeah, so I, Hook was in Co- yeah, Cooper for a bit. So, yeah. so I'd gone to uh, Palm Springs or somewhere to see those guys play. Fitz introduced me to Jason, gave him my credit list and all that, and then he kind of, you know, Fitz just kind of, kind of pitched me to Jason as as a great guy. Fast forward a couple months later, Jason gets the Five Finger gig and he introduces me to the band or Fitz and jason did i don't know how it really worked out but pretty soon i'm sitting at a at a tgif here in town with a couple guys in the band talking about it and then um basically all they wanted though they had already had a record out and they recorded it largely themselves and produced it themselves so all they wanted me to do is they wanted me to produce drums and vocals and uh in the end i said you know what that's I was already working on the second Aussie record at that time. And I said, I'm working on the Aussie record. I can't take a break from that to produce drums and vocals. That's not what I do on a whole producer. I got to do the whole thing. No, we just want drums and vocals. So I turned it down. So I turned that down pretty much twice. And then Zoltan, the leader finally calls me and says, what will it take for you to sign up? Do the and, whole record. Yeah. I, well, I said, you know what? This is what it'll take. I'll sign up. I'll go to Sharon get some time off from the Aussie gig and I'll, and I'll produce this, but if I, and I'll even just, let's just go on the premise that it's drums and vocals, but my feeling is by the time I get in there, you're going to realize I'm more valuable to do the whole thing. And if I do that, we have to adjust the contract. You have to give me credit where credit's due. That's all I ask, just to be fair. And he said, okay. And so, you know, we started a couple months later and holy, eight albums later, now we're here. I mean, I've done literally done eight records with that band.
4: You were talking earlier off the air during the commercial break, you were saying that one of the hardest things for you to do is to pass on doing another record with a client you've had a long relationship with. What makes it what makes the relationship with Five Finger Death Punch so good that you can go eight records with them, including the newest one, right? Yeah yeah what, what, Where's the is it just is there a chemistry with those guys? Is there a connection how do, it's, it's rare any producer to have a history like that, even with Ozzy, who you had a great relationship with, you have not done the last two Ozzy records. So to have a, a run like this with one artist and, and the amount of success is incredible. What, where do you, what do you think that comes from with you and that particular band? Uh, where does that come from?
3: I think it's a combination of a whole pile of things. One is obviously my skill set is very conducive for that band the things I bring to the table really helped that band a lot. They have such natural talent and Ivan, the singer is an amazing singer. I mean, it's hard to find that guy. So I knew I had that guy at least. Um, they're great musicians. I could, I could, I could help them be better. And then also it was a matter of convenience. We both live in town. So it's easy. Uh, and then once success started happening, it, it was like, wow, this is really great. And, and, um, You know, they were and are a complicated band on any given day, let's just put it like that. And I think that, that my calm nature helped them focus on making records rather than drama you know there's never any shortage of drama with those with any good band i mean right. it's always oh i know doesn't matter who it is i oh, mean I know. the best bands are the ones that are the most contentious in a certain sense and i i think that i that i was able to be friends with everybody and not take sides and just get the record done and help them be their best and they and then on the other side of it they were loyal i was loyal you know i think their label at one point sued them for not working with anybody but me and they were ready to not like go to court to use me as a producer. So how can you say no to that the next time they come come calling, right? So there was a little bit of a, you know, loyalty there and you know the success also spoke for itself too. I mean, it, I I think that the longer you go on, the, the more you can find the special people, the the more you want to stay with them and and you know there there's a lot of special people including Jason Hook tomorrow. You know it's coming, so.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's no longer in the band, but right.
3: but for 6 records, I mean, he was a big part
4: of, part of that, and I know he's working on something new. Hook yeah, is, and yeah. he's got something coming down the pike. Are you working with him on it or
3: uh, not specifically at this time? Right, you know, um, yeah, uh, 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 only because I'm. Taking some time for myself, we had mentioned on the I mentioned on the break that I, you know, during COVID, I got a taste of what it was like not to not be working, not to work not, every not day, seven days days a week, and it's like, wow, this is what living is really like. Like I can be in my pool in the afternoon when the sun's shining, not just late at night, right? And, um, you know, but I certainly fully support Jason. I've heard some of the songs he's working on; they're killer.
4: So yeah. So tell me about some of these other artists as I look down your resume that you've worked with, and and uh, one that jumps out is Disturbed, Mm -hmm. and you recorded the and produced the cover of Sound of Silence, right? Right. Which really, I mean, of course, Disturbed had a lot of success prior to that, but that thing was a, I think, kind of a game changer in their career. And hearing Draymond sing that and everything, can you was that what was the uh, where did the idea come for them to do that song? Did that come from you? Well, that came completely from me and I'm the only reason No, I'm just completely kidding. <laughs> well, no, if it it, did, it, it, it did.
3: completely didn't come from me. That was a gift, you know, to me in a certain sense because, you know, that 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 was a great demonstration of team teamwork in the sense that it's actually the drummer Mike who came up with the title. And uh he just, you know, came they, up with the title to what? Or came, came up with the idea of doing that song because we were because okay. they want they knew they wanted to do a cover song. They didn't know which one, so throughout the whole recording process, we're throwing out ideas and I'm pitching them ideas and David, dreaming the singers, pitching ideas and Dan's giving ideas and and then all of a sudden that type that song name pops up and we're thinking about it all, kind of like the room goes quiet and. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Yeah, we could. I could do something with that. I start thinking, yeah, that could be really cool. Completely change it around. So that was the. That's how it got started. And then, of course, um, as you know, there's more orchestration in it than than say guitar. And I love doing the orchestration stuff. I I live for all that sort of you know um, you know production. So that enabled me to show my skills and. And uh, Dan, as a guitar player, I mean, it was his call, really, to not have a whole bunch of guitar in it. I mean, I always thought we'd always kind of redisturb it by the third verse or something like that. It would just go into chunk, 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 you know. But Dan says, no, let's just keep it like this. This is great. So he was gracious enough in the fact that he didn't need to be all over it and added some great acoustic parts to it. And then David, of course, sang it and knocked, a, knocked it out of, out of the park and... I mean, it was like, holy shit, we did that? I and mean, that's great. And then, and then the funny thing was is that when the label and everybody came to listen down, I'll tell you one, one thing, nobody said anything really about that song. Nobody listened to it and said, that's going to be the one. Oh, really? They kind of laughed. And it wasn't until it was out and the numbers started coming, the streaming numbers started coming of, of that, wow, that one, people are playlisting that. People are playing that over and over again. That's, and then they did that video for it, and then it was done. I mean, it just kind of took off on
4: its own. As a producer on any of the acts you've worked with, and I'm going to just run down some of the names so people on, uh, know just some of the stuff in your resume, Disturbed, um, as we mentioned, Ozzy, Skillet, Hell Yeah, In This Moment, um, there, there's Five Finger, there's a bunch of stuff here. Do you know when you record a band and you're producing a band, in any of the bands you've worked with, have, have there been moments where, maybe it was sound of silence with disturbed where you are in the control room, the recordings going down, it's being captured and it hits you like a bolt and you say, holy shit, this could be like the defining thing. This could be a game changer for this band. This is the moment. Cause I'll talk to bands all the time. Like, um, you know, they'll tell me stories like a, a song that's their biggest song. They're like, well, we had a fight to get that on the record or the label yeah. didn't want it or the producer didn't want it and yeah. it's like their signature song. Yeah. So as a producer, have you had moments like that? Always, yeah. I
3: mean, give you, me some examples. I mean, I would say that um I would say Sound of Silence was one of those where we as the band and me said this is this is epic. You know, we knew it. Yeah. But it we just thought we'll just play it for the label and they'll Hoist us up on their shoulders and you know walk us around the room, saying, "For hey, he's a jolly good fellow." But <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying they didn't like it; they just didn't really right. see the future in that. I would also say, like bad bad company on the first five five finger record that I that he did. The you cover, know, the back, the f- cover. Yeah. Right. So that one, you know, Jason was a big part of that, and um, but once we heard, I think Ivan chose that song. The singer chose that song. Once we heard him saying, "Go, oh wow, that's that's why I chose that one. That sounds great." We knew that one. The Wrong Side of Heaven, uh, which is a five-finger song too, Zoltan was a big part of that one. And then again, once you hear Ivan sing it, it's like it all kind of makes sense. I knew that one. In this moment, the song called Horror mm-hmm. might not be on everybody's, um, you know, the tip of their tongue, but that's an amazing track. That, you know, the thing for me that I love the most about these days is that you can validate a song over time. So when you look at, at streaming numbers, like it, in the old days, someone buys, buys an album. You can kind of tell what the favorites are but you can't really tell someone can say a song is their favorite but yet they're playing the ninth song on on the record rather than than the hit right whereas now you can look at the streaming numbers and as they move and go wow this is the last song on the record that almost never made it but it's now it's the seventh most played song now it's the sixth wasn't even a a single now it's the third most played song so you know i i think you know one thing that mutt used to tell me is the cream will always rise to the top which I used to argue with with him about because I don't think that's always true. I think sometimes it's marketing, sometimes it's dots dots connecting at the right time. But a lot of times a song will have a life or a second life or a third life because it's good and people are playing it. And now we can say that song wasn't a single, but it's the most played song.
4: Well, there's other things that drive it too. We're in a time now where whether it's uh, Stranger Things, it showed up on a TV show, yeah, exactly. or you know, you've know, you got a 38-year-old Fleetwood Mac song that is in a Chevy commercial right now that is, I don't know if it's doing anything chart-wise, but it all of a sudden has this new life. So there are all these different things, uh, TikTok, that drives yeah. people to music, whether it could be a deep track that all of a sudden takes on this new life. it's 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 pretty interesting to see. I mean, there's so many pros and cons to, I think where we are in the industry. Now there's a lot of people that love the old school model. I, I love the days. I miss the days where you watched a record go up and down the charts in a year, year and a half. Oh, there, it entered at, 26 next week it's got a bullet it went to 13 it dropped to 60 three months later a new video came out it j- now it's like to me for most bands it's like all front loaded into the first week yeah. get the first week number don't pay attention to where we are in three weeks because you're probably off the charts because the bottom fell out yeah. and that that's the part of it that i hate but what's interesting is you don't know what down the line could be a trigger that complete this guy this director james gunn putting stuff in his movies and tv shows Uh, all of a sudden obscure 80s bands are having like this renaissance
3: and 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 so that's why i'm saying you the cream doesn't always rise to the top at the start but hopefully eventually it will and it will in these kind of cases where those movie guys will put in the right song and not because you know just not they're not making the song. The song was already great. They're just giving it an avenue for people to realize, oh, that was a great song too. And th- that's the beauty of the world now is that those people can, you know, or you know, for those writers, for those artists, for those producers, it's like validation at a later date. It's a long waited validation. But honestly, those for me are the best ones. You know, the ones where I can tell a band this is a great song and they'll say, No, it's not. And ten years later I can say, I told you that was a great song. You didn't believe in it. And here it is. It's a top 10. You know, I mean, I love that.
4: Give me give me a song or an artist that you worked with that hasn't happened. And we might not know the song or the artist, but you felt strongly should have broken through. And maybe it still will, uh, given what we just said. But was there a moment where you thought like this is this is a slam dunk and it just didn't happen?
3: Well, I've been I've been pretty lucky that most of the things that I've worked on have at least had some kind of uh, you know, su- success. I I would say the let's call him the country rock guy I'm working with now, Corey Marks. Um, you know, he's still going to happen at this at this point. Uh, we're just on record number 2, you know.
4: Now, is it I think I just met him. Is he the artist that has the big country career and is making a move into rock? Do I have the right guy?
3: Uh, probably. Maybe not. Are you talking about Hardy or are you talking about... Corey. Corey. Well, Corey Mark, I mean, he had a Canadian country career and then now he's both rock and country down here.
4: Okay, I got the wrong guy. I got yeah. Cody Jinks is oh, the yeah. guy I just yeah. met yeah. who has a big yeah. outlaw country thing. Yeah. I was just at Rock, Lahoma he was headlining the country equivalent at the same venue two weeks later, Mm -hmm. two weeks earlier at Rocklahoma, where I saw in this moment and Marie and everybody, two weeks earlier, he was on that show, but opening like Lois built. So he was like one gig, he was making like five grand and the next two weeks later, he was making probably a million dollars. This is a different artist
1: though. Yeah, Yeah.
3: but but very similar in, in the way that, You know, once I started becoming more interested in, let's call it the business of music, or just understanding why something is popular, why it's not, you know, one weird thing to talk about is that artists can be like artists basically by, I mean, I don't know how to put this in the right way, by the drugs they get used when they're either listened to or made. Let's put it like that, meaning that if you like a band as you're sitting there drinking beer, working on the car, it could be... That could be a rock band but if there's a dude working on a car listening to country music the guy who's drinking beer listen working on it listen to rock is still going to like that country artist and that country artist will probably like, like that rock guy just like you know if someone's smoking pot it's going to be a very different kind of band but you can have somebody grooving with a pot band and a completely different you know uh, genre let's say somehow there's synchronicity between those kind of acts and they can start doing collaborations on each other. If it's a, a psychedelic, it's gonna be more of an EDM kind of thing. And, you know, so, so I think that when you're talking about Cody, you know, or Corey Marks, Cody Jinx or Corey Marks, I mean, their fans are, are, are drinking beer in a certain sense. And, you know, and so like, for instance, Five Finger right now has a tour with Brantley Gilbert, who's a country guy mm-hmm. and Corey Marks, who's a country rock guy. And uh, But Brantley did a collaboration with Five Finger. So it's going to be really interesting now on an actual national large tour to see what a headlining heavy band does with a headlining country band. But yes, and oddly enough, you mentioned in Rocklahoma. You know, the brainchild for this was when I did a record in Oklahoma and I'm realizing, wait a minute, we're going in this guy's truck. We just, we're working on a rock record and he's playing Jason Aldean. I mean this doesn't, if there's a country and he's a metal guy and then you get into the country truck and he's playing a metal band and go, these are all the same people, you know? And so there, there is a, a, kind of like a black hole for a lot of these people where there's no Eagles anymore. There's no sort of mid range band. You're either extreme metal or you're extreme country or something like, or like pop country. But there's a whole area for that. People can work with each other that listen to heavy rock. You can listen to Pan, Pantera and you can also listening to Johnny Cash. That's the same group you know they can be the same same group.
4: Do you need to personally like a band's music to want to work with them or can you can you take the gig and just say hey, you know, I it's not my cup of tea, but I get it and I'm going to make the best sounding record for them or do you need to personally like the songs? I think I think you can
3: only do really good work if you're emotionally invested in that artist too. However, you know, it's a business in the sense that, you know, some producers can and some producers can't. You know, I think that at a certain point, some people may have a level of expertise that they can say, okay, well, this is this genre. These are the top songs. This guy has to fit into that. Here's the radio, the radio format. He's got to fit into somewhere there. So you can intellectualize it, I guess, to a certain point. But I think if you're not really into it, if you don't like what you're doing, you're only going to do it, you know, second second rate. So, I guess I'm saying yes and no at the same same time. If, mm. if that if that makes sense.
4: What artist is out there that you've yet like the number one Kevin Churko? If they came to me, I'd work with them in a second. That you wish you could produce. Mm.
3: Well, my daughter asks me that a lot because she manages me, and so she's always wondering who to, who to reach out to.
4: And we should mention your son, Kane, yeah. has carved out quite a career as well as an engineer yeah. and producer. Yeah. And he's done a lot of great work as well. And yeah. Yeah. No, he's, no, you got to be, ass, yeah. I'm sure you tutored him and got to be pretty proud to see what he's become. Yeah.
3: Some of our best projects are, um, you've worked together with working him. with each other. And even now, I mean, I'm more interested in, you know, my upcoming schedule of working with him on stuff. Cause I just think that we, we work in a different way when we work with each other. It's like, you know, a little bit of, you know, where I'm weak, he's strong, where he's weak, I'm stronger. So, but, um, you know, this is an odd choice, but Steve Earl, I don't know if you know who, who he, I is. Know, he is. Sure. He's an outlaw country guy. Right. But, you know, I guess, you know, I don't really do records like that. And, the, and you know, sometimes my fascination with an artist is more so because I can't figure out how they're how I like it that much. You know, it's like I'm even trying to figure it out. So when you got a guy that's so raw like that and it's just song oriented and he can pitch up with an acoustic guitar and sell it, I love that because I've done you know, let's call it the Def Leopardish kind of productions, bigger production and, you know, exotic, you know, recording and that sort of thing. So, but I know how to do that, right? So for me, the flip side of that, that's almost like a polar opposite, but I love that, you know? And, um, you know, some sometimes you just go where you get the success and, you know, I, I, I want to make Hay While the Sun Shines and, you know... At the same time, I wouldn't say no to I would work probably I do record for him for for free, you know, just just because he's the oh, soundtrack your daughter and doesn't
4: like, like hearing that. Or she manages you. <laughs> it's not good business there, Kevin. Well, <laughs> but I get it. It's a passion thing. It's something you and, and it might it might. It sounds like it would also, as you said, you've done the huge sounding records and all of that, that it would be a different side for you to explore of your own talent yeah it,
3: it would be exciting to do something as different as that but something that i still really know i mean i've been listening to him since i was a kid so yeah you know so to me it's like i'm very knowledgeable of every record he's ever ever had i've just never done something like that but i listened to it um but not just outlaw country stuff i mean i mean there's so many artists that i'll i'll listen to that i i, I couldn't even do a record there's lots of sort of jazz records that i like that I'd like to work with some some of those guys or do a record like a Chet Baker or someone like that. You know, a, it, it, I don't even know if I could do those kinds of, kind of things. But, you know, that, that's the challenge that inspires me because I don't know how it's done. Whereas most rock records I can listen to and I kind of know how they're all done.
4: Ever pass on somebody that came back to haunt you? Oh, yeah.
3: Can you give me one? Well, I'll tell you one. I didn't necessarily pass on it, because they didn't offer me anything, but let's just say I didn't try hard and that was actually imagine dragons.
2: Okay. Um, Or local.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Local band too. And you know, they invited me over to their, their studio, you know, they were working out of the killer studio at the, at the time. Um, you know, obviously a great singer and everything, but I was so busy and you know, maybe I wasn't completely what fit into what they were trying to do. And so, you know, we kind of hung out for a little bit of time, but you know, I, you know, some, sometimes artists need you to show interest. <laughs> let's, let's call that.
2: Right. like that. And maybe... Yeah, feel a little wind and you know,
3: But it's not like they offered me, hey, do you want to produce this? And they turned it down. It was like, hey, come over and hang out. And then, you know, it's just nothing ever comes with that. I probably could have massaged that relationship a little bit more to to do something like that. But anyway, they found the right guy for their band any, anyways. So right. it's like, I probably wouldn't have made it like that. They probably would have failed if I would have, would have done it. So, you know, that band, I mean... I try to for, forget the ones that, <laughs> that that got away. There's no point in dwelling on, on that. I'm very grateful and happy with the ones I got. So, right, you know, I've I've, I've really managed to have been blessed in so many ways of the artists that have been, been able to work with over and over again. You mentioned Five Finger, eight records with them, six records with In This Moment, three records with Hell Yeah, and, you know, with, with Vinnie Paul. And, sure. uh, I mean, that was amazing working with him. So you know, I'm very grateful for for what I've been able to to catch the ones yeah. the ones I get away. I mean, that's that's just life.
4: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So going forward, we got a couple minutes here left before we have to wrap it. You're, you're working on uh, these these samples and these things that you're building out. These would be things that other producers could essentially buy or license from you if they wanted to use your sounds, your tones, whatever it is that you're. you're developing
3: yeah so a couple things so so a drum sample sample library largely because i mean i'm a drummer so that's i've spent a large part of my life learning how to record drums make good sounds um so i'm fascinated by that and that's something i can do in my own time and poke away at it when i want to plus a plug-in um which is like a audio equipment for for your listeners who maybe aren't 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 engineers you know, a plug-in library as well for, for a particular company. So I won't be selling these things myself personally. It's for another another company. So I can just worry about having the fun and making making the stuff, and they can worry about it. But selling. you're still
4: going to make records. Oh, yeah. You still oh, want to yeah. produce bands going yeah. forward. Yeah. And wh- who's your favorite drummer? All time.
3: Who's my favorite drummer of all time? Brent Fitz.
4: <laughs> is that right? You've got to <laughs> say that because you're going to see him? Or... <laughs> uh, Fitz is great. Don't get me wrong, but... I was expecting a Neil Peart or something well, like that. You
3: know Neil's Neil's pretty pretty badass too. I'm not going to, you know, I'm 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 sure Brent would probably bow to to Neil. Right. Um uh Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to go wrong when you're talking about. I mean Canada's had a lot of great drummers like that, but but Neil is certainly at the top of my list. Yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah no doubt. Well, listen man, this is um you know, I appreciate all the time. If there, do you have any public like uh Stuff you want to put out? Do you do social media or anything like that, or uh, do you have the mutt lang school where you're on you're off well, the grid? <laughs> well, I'm,
3: I mean, I have to be honest and say I'm getting ready to do the mutt lang thing one day. I mean, I do have social media accounts. I do have an Instagram account. And just under your name, Kevin. I, I just yeah, just just Google Kevin Turkel, okay. you know, you'll you'll find it. I I don't I don't really do a lot of that. I don't put a lot of stuff out out there, but but occasionally I do.
4: And um, your studio here, the hideout in Vegas do you um if a band's listening and they wanted to they could make a deal and they could you know make it work financially your studio is open to the public anyone can come in there or is it only for people you're producing
3: no no oh no um no Uh, so there's there's five studios there basically so on generally on any given day i'll be in one kane will be in another one and, there, and then there's two or three available so, so it's open so while yeah so literally while we're in one room we could have barry manilow or Corey taylor or um you know miley cyrus in the other room right i mean we've had everybody from Lil wayne there to every genre it's it's just basically a, com- a big big commercial recording studio and I just happen to work work there.
4: I got it. And that's what that music means. Thank you so much for doing this. Kevin Cherko. everybody. The studio here in Vegas is called The Hideout. We just scratched the surface on his uh, amazing career. Great stuff. Well, I thank Kevin for coming by the Vegas place. And I uh, will get out there one of these days. And check out his studio, The Hideout. Have to do that sooner than later. I hear it's an amazing facility. Great stories there from Kevin. Love speaking to the producers. Coming up on the radio show, actually, which eventually I'll bring to the podcast, I'm going to do one of these uh, producer specials with Mike Varney, a legendary guy who has been behind so many of the big-name guitar players that went on to have great success. So I'm looking forward to getting that in the can, and I'll let you know when I'm going to air that course first on faction talk 103 for trunk nation on Sirius XM, and eventually i'll get some audio on the podcast here down the line thank you all for listening to the eddie trunk podcast please be sure to follow me on social media at eddie trunk twitter instagram facebook page and thanks to joel pollack for producing as usual i'll see you guys next thursday for another all-new episode